We did it! We did it! I cannot tell you how stoked I was the day that I got the email saying, George Benson said yes. If you're not familiar with George Benson, maybe you should just stop this interview and get familiar. But <laughs> selfishly, I want you to just listen to this interview. So you're probably familiar with George Benson anyways. Why? Because he is an icon in both the jazz world and the pop world. He has had number one hits. He has won Grammys for record of the year in the pop realm. He has been a jazz icon, one of the legends of jazz guitar, and one of the few people in the history of popular music to cross over from jazz to pop culture, jazz, pop, back and forth, and crush it at the highest level in both of those. He's the original king of smooth. Many people would credit him with inventing the genre of smooth jazz. Now, hey, smooth jazz is a dirty word. We know, we know. But go back and listen to Breezin, because that album is slaying. Seriously, it's insane. The arranging on it, the playing, the writing, the recording, it is incredible. I asked George about the degradation of the genre and where things have gone, but how to keep the heart and soul of it alive. So, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Let's hit it. All right, folks. You're listening to a guitar podcast. What does that mean? I'm going to talk a little bit about guitar gear. Okay? Now, this podcast is presented by Fender and Premier Guitar Magazine. So, today we're talking about that Fender Player Series. Fender is stoked to welcome the Duo Sonic Mustang and Mustang Bass to the Player Series family. Shorter scale necks, cool asymmetrical shape, classic Fender colors. It's a win-win-win. I personally have a Mustang PJ bass out of the Player Series, and I love it. That one, it's my personal favorite out of the basses there because I can get the J sound with the bridge pickup, and I can get more of the P sound with the neck pickup, and the middle is a nice little blend. As far as the guitars go, the Duo Sonic, the Mustang, cool designs. Obviously, everybody, come on. We're guitar players. You're familiar with the Stratocaster. You're familiar with the Telecaster. But don't let your research stop there. Designed for authentic Fender tone with a bit of an edge. Alnico single coils, split coil and humbucking pickups. You get your foot in the past while looking to the future of guitar tone. Now, what I would suggest, try to go to a Fender dealer. See if you can get your hands on one of these necks because the modern C-shape is really cool. Fits really nice in my hand. If you can't get to a Fender dealer, check out the website. If you have any other Fender guitar that you can reference, there's a really cool diagram where you can see the shapes of all the Fender necks and the styles of necks. This one, really comfortable, very playable. I love the modern C-shaped neck. Now, I talked about the Mustang, Mustang bass, Duo Sonic, but yes, they've got the Telecaster. They've got the Stratocaster with the kind of specifications across the player series. So go check it out. If you're curious, hit Fender.com. You can see a whole array of things there. Check out their YouTube page. Dig it. George, thank you so much for being with us today. What an honor and a privilege to have you on the show. Yeah, bro. My first question for you is about connecting with the audience. You're someone who comes from a background of jazz and then crossing over into having pop hits. Some guitar players who start by playing instrumental music and then want to cross over into appealing to the more general public, don't quite understand how to connect to an audience because it's hard. It's hard to connect with an audience that you're in front of. 
Can you share some insight on how to connect with the audience as a guitar player? Well, fortunately for me, I think I have to give credit to the fact that I've always played for an audience. From the time I was a little boy, I used to work in nightclubs at seven years old. And it was always about pleasing the audience. To please the audience, you had to do something that they like. And the easiest way to connect with them is to play something they're familiar with and to play the devil out of it. (laughs) So I've always been dedicated to that way of looking at things. You've played everything from small clubs to Hollywood Bowl. How do you approach playing at Ronnie Scott's versus playing Hollywood Bowl? Do you change your show? Do you change your production? Do you change your demeanor, the song choices, the arrangement choices? Well, painstakingly so is the fact that I've played in front of these audiences all my life, big and small. The big audiences happened after I started making hit records, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh Oh, no, actually, it started just before. I was on the road with people like Freddie Hubbard and, and Grover Washington Jr. and people like that. Uh, and then my record, Reason, came out and changed life forever for me. I yeah. was in front of large audiences. But there is a difference in playing in front of a small audience in a club because the subtle things that you do are felt and heard by the audience differently than you would uh, be able to communicate with them in a large audience. You have to be more or less on the surface in a big place, like Mm. the Hollywood Bowl or in Brazil, where we played to 350,000 people outside. You just cannot get seven points over. (laughs) Yeah. So I had to, uh, you know, I had to play things which were easy for them to get involved with. And of course, I had a lot of dance records out pop records that do just that. Yeah. So is some of the things that you change is like the repertoire that you play and what's going to connect with either a 350,000 person audience or a 200 capacity club? The main thing is that um, I have to to assess the audience before I get out in front of them. I have a feeling for what's going on by the way they are, you know, murmuring and moving about Instantly, you know, they're, they're uh, bottling up and down and anticipating the show. Mm-hmm. So we try to give them something that, that makes them comfortable first. And once we get them on our side, we can communicate with them. Because it's all about communication and, uh, you know, and, and feeling. The two great points that I always try to get across is a good feeling and a good sound. So once we mastered that, then we were well on our way to playing to any size audience. I like that. I like the idea of getting them on your side, then being able to explore a little more. Were you aware of that when you were starting to change over and cross over in some of your record making? Going from Cookbook and It's Uptown and, and those sort of things into Breezin and that that sort of era, like when you were changing over. And maybe even also just because you were going from CTI to Warner Brothers as far as record labels. But were you aware of that or was it just like you were diving in head first when you were changing your sound? Yeah, that, that head first thing sounds closer to what reality was at that time. Cree Taylor was a, was a very creative and innovative producer. Mm-hmm. Remember, he started Bossa Nova music, uh, the fame of Bossa Nova music with uh, Stan Getz and uh, Charlie Bird um, during uh, uh, the first Bossa Nova era. He yeah. made Bossa Nova music famous all over the world with Stan Getz. And then he made the jazz organ with Jimmy Smith popular with Walk mm-hmm. on the Wild Side. 
Yeah. And then he took a guitar player, a jazz guitar player from Indianapolis, West Montgomery, and made him a superstar. So he was the man who I was happy to meet up with. And I came along at a critical time, the death of the great West Montgomery. People thought I was designed to take his place, you know, that they were grooming me to take his place. But that wasn't the case because that was impossible. No one could replace West Montgomery. And yeah. No one knew it better than me because he was my friend, you know. But it was a challenge to stay, you know, at a point where I was not challenging him, but that I was being groomed for something else in life. In mm. my life, you know, the, something different than I had known. And that happened to be the pop things, or the things that came out on the album reason, and a lot of the things that we did with CTI. Working with somebody like Creed Taylor, who's got seemingly a Midas touch for that sort of genre and that sort of feel, and then working with somebody like Quincy Jones or some of those other pop people, what do you take away that's different? Or what, is there a, a certain approach that's different? Or is there something that's really similar between them? Yeah, their approaches were, were very different. But they both had the same goal. They're both great A&R men, very knowledgeable about the industry, and a, had a dedication to the audience. Well, that's what the A&R men do. They take the artist and repertoire, and they, they try to match them up to what the audience is feeling or, or what they want the audience to feel at a particular time in their lives or careers. Greetailer was more jazzy because he came along at a great time in history where we had some great players and innovative players, such as in the case of uh, Stan Getz and, and Jimmy Smith and West Montgomery. Yeah. Quincy Jones came along and heard the voice of uh, uh, Michael Jackson, and he knew that he was not supposed to be ordinary. He was not going to be an ordinary R&B singer or pop singer. And he weaved his way through the industry and came up with a great songwriter. And that's what he needed, songs. Yeah. And he found the right cat to write the songs. And fortunate for me, Rod Temperton, who wrote the smashes for Michael Jackson, also wrote Give Me the Night for Me. Yeah. And he was one of the songwriters on, uh, or the principal songwriter on Give Me the Night album. So... Yeah. Quincy Jones became very, very important in my career, too. One thing and there were many other producers along the way. Yeah. Of course, Tommy LaPuma, who turned me on to this masquerade and on Broadway. Uh, I didn't particularly think either one of those songs were going to mean anything. But he envisioned them being gigantic songs, and he happened to be right. Yeah, clearly it worked out. <laughs> You seem to be such a great interpreter of songs. I've heard you do so many different songs, both vocally and on guitar. Is there a certain way that you approach interpreting other music to give it your own thing or to give it what it's asking of you or asking of a performer? Well, one thing I try to stay away from is repeating the, um, the original version. Hmm. What people didn't need was a second copy of uh, the, the Drifters version of on Broadway because they had already nailed that. That was already a classic. And for that reason, I didn't want to jump on it. You know, I reneged when the producer said, uh, he asked me if I knew the song and I said, yeah, I know it very well. And I said, but you don't want me to destroy that, do you? He said, well, you won't destroy it, George. I said, wait a minute now. I don't know. I said, let me listen to it a while and see if there's anything on it I can come up with. And I did what I always do, try to stay away from competing with the original version. Mm. Uh, 
first of all, was one of the great singers of that time was with the Drifters. His name was Rudy. I can't remember his last name. Who did uh, Up on the Roof, and he did um, on Broadway and a couple other wonderful things. I didn't want to compete with him. Same way I didn't want to compete with uh, LTD on the song uh, Love Ballad. Jeffrey Osborne was nobody. He wasn't an ordinary singer. He was way above that. So I decided to take it a different tempo, uh, different approach to the song. And that was the way to go with that for me. Yeah. And I feel like when I listen to you play solo guitar music, you've got a similar thing where it's similar in the way that it's that you you talk about concept where like when I listen to you play solo guitar stuff, it sounds way different than when other people do it. And you're an incredible solo guitar player and your approach to it always seems to be so unique in its own way. Is there something that you do when you sit down to play a tune? Are there certain goals that you have in mind when you sit down to play a solo guitar tune? Well, when I hear a song and I decide to approach it on my own, when I start messing with it, so to speak, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think of the whole, I can hear the whole orchestra behind me. Mm. And so that's a big plus for me because when I hear the orchestra, I can pick out things that I feel are absolutely necessary in my approach to the song. So I start adding here and there a note, passing notes and passing chords and a certain part of the song that needs to stick out or stand out or have more dynamics, those kinds of things. But more than that, I try to keep it simple because when it gets too sophisticated, too much technique in it, you kind of lose the audience. It loses me as the interpreter of the song. But having great experience with people like Barney Kessel on the road, Jim Hall, and a few others, they gave me a good sense of what it's like to be a solo guitar player, something I never imagined for me. But I ended up doing a couple of solo pieces, and I said, hey, nothing's impossible. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I've enjoyed, you know, having a go at that. I now believe that there is something in my career in the future that's going to make all of that meaning. It's going to give it a different meaning. And hopefully Mm. I'll come up with something great. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear it. But in the meantime, I enjoy hearing you play with other people. And I, I love your collaborations. You've played on different records and collaborated with everybody from Stevie Wonder, Miles Davis... Quincy, Shaka, Aretha, Freddie Hubbard, like you talked about. One in particular that I've found really interesting recently is a collaboration you did with Gorillaz. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Wow. When someone called me and said, there's a group called the Gorillaz, (laughs) and they want to do a uh, a collaboration with you. And I said, absolutely not. I don't like the name and the sound of the group because I thought it was an African-American group. Why would they call themselves the Gorillas? You know? And they said, no, it's not an African-American group. It's an English band. And I said, what? But uh, I said, send me the material. Let me see what these guys with a title like that are thinking. And they sent me the songs. I said, well, I don't see myself in this, uh, this material. I don't think I can actually do it any good. I don't think I can add anything that, means, that is meaningful. And then I... I turned them down, and uh, my manager said, George, this is a very popular group. People love this group, and their approach to music is to put out a video. 
uh, animated thing. And I said, wow, that's different. Yeah. And I could send it back to me. So they sent it back to me. And I was having issues with my engineer. I said, well, you know, first of all, you're playing it too soft. I cannot feel the band. I can't feel the energy. Mm. So I said, turn this stuff up in the studio. So he turned the speakers way up, and I knew exactly where I belonged in the song. Mm. There I am. I'm sitting sitting in that chair over there, and I got my guitar in my hand. Give me my guitar, and let's go. And he (laughs) gave me the guitar, and I just played some simple things, you know. I didn't try to get sophisticated or approve anything. I just played what the band, what the song suggested to me. And they loved it. They called back and said, Mr. Benson, this is exactly or better or more than what we expected. So I was pleased with that. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, when I hear that track, what you add to it, like you're saying, it's so simple, but it's so meaningful to the song because it just feels what's appropriate. But it's also kind of what gives it its X factor is that it's a gorilla's tune with you on it. And it's not just like slapping George Benson samples on top of it. You know, they're very musical phrases that that are just like, they contribute to the song. It's not just a random thing. So uh, it's fun to hear. <laughs> here, once you once you can feel the music, you know exactly what to do. I love that. You know, something that's easy and, and, the, and in line with what you're saying, in addition to that, it's easy to destroy a song as simple as that. What would have been the approach to destroy it? <laughs> I'm curious because a lot of people can do that. What what's the what's the trap that somebody would fall into that would cause them to destroy something like that in a collaboration like that? Well, trying to prove a point will do that. Trying to say, well, I got to let them know, you know, that George Benson is on here. Uh, I better get one of my gimmicks out. <laughs> no, if if you don't, if it's not a part of you already, if you don't know who you are, the audience will never know who you are. You got to know. Uh, play what you feel uh, is good for this particular audience that you're going to play for and always put your best foot forward, of course, but you don't have to reinvent yourself every time you play because mm. you're there already. You've already been invented. You already invented yourself. You couldn't get away from that if you tried. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So I was happy to just uh, play with that band. It's like I was playing live with them. And yeah. eventually I did play live with them in front of 10 or 12,000 people. What wow. an experience. That would have been so fun to see. I got to see it. I got to see it. There's a video of it. I was amazed to, to know how many fans I had. Because uh, they didn't tell people I was going to be on the show. They just came to do a show. And I saw all those people. I said, but how did these people know who this group is? And I never heard of them before. Mm. There in droves. And when they announced that I was in the house and I came out of the bandstand, the house went to the moon. <laughs> That's got to feel great. Really a great experience. That's got to feel great. That's fun. And fun for you to connect with a different audience. You know, like you're saying, you you didn't even know who this band was. And these guys, some of these fans may not have ever heard of you, surprisingly. That's true, too. Because there was a lot of young people there, a lot of Spanish people. I, I was hmm. amazed at how many, because it was the hall that we played or the outdoor venue was actually in a Spanish neighborhood. Oh, okay. And, uh, cool. It was loaded with people. Um, it just goes to show you, you can't underestimate. Don't judge people by, you know, without experiencing them first. You know, having some association and some dialogue, uh, get to know who you're dealing with, and then you'll have a better idea of what they're expecting of you. 
and you made some new friends. Yeah. My connection with them gives me an audience I didn't know I had. Yeah, I love that. Well, you said something really interesting about being who you are and finding who you are. For me, I'm, I'm known as this rhythm guitar guy. I'm funk guitar player, consummate rhythm guy. You, to me, as like when I, when I think of George Benson, burning jazz R&B guy with the octaves and the fast lines and the vocal stuff and the interpreting of songs and being able to switch back and forth between pop and jazz... You know, you discover this thing and, and shed this thing and, and other people say things about you like, oh man, that's your thing. Like, that's what you do. That's the Benson thing. I have a question about that. When, <laughs> when and how long do you embrace that? And when do you try to explore new ground? Or is it just kind of expanding what and who you are? I like that last phrase. Expanding is the word because we don't know where we're going to go from here. A guy would come out of nowhere uh, his name might be Prince. All of a sudden, there's a guy named Prince. What does he do? Well, when you hear his music, it's in Delaware. It stays with you. You yeah. can't shake it because it's everywhere. So, you know, you're going to take that in. If you shun that or try to put it on the side, you're crazy. Yeah. Because he's giving us some new elements to add to what we already know. Mm. Or he's telling us what you should be learning because this is where we are going. He's leading the way to what the future is going to be like. Yeah. We don't know how big an influence he is going to be, but we better get some of this while it's gettable. <laughs> you know? So that's the way I think. And I never underestimate the next guy, no matter where he's sitting in that room or what he's doing on that record. I have run into cats. I didn't think was so incredible until one day I was in the studio with a guy and uh, he was reading my music from across the room because it was so much music I couldn't read it anyway. <laughs> I'm not a reader. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a sight reader. I'm not a good sight reader. Sure. And uh, he was reading my music from across the room. He said, George, hold the page up. Now from way across the room, he saw the, the sheet and he said, oh, that's a such and such chord and, and it looks like this. And he would play it I knew it by the sound. When he yeah. played the sound, I knew I knew what it was all about. Mm. And uh, they told me that when when I came to New York and I was going to run into the baddest guitar player in New York for sessions, uh, I'm trying to think of his name now because he he's uh, off the scene now. He played on Grover Washington's album, uh, Mr. Magic. Eric Gale was his name. Yeah, I know who that is. And, and he was very, very popular. Now when I listen to records where he played and I didn't know he was playing on my records in the background. When I hear that, I hear him now, his personality. I said, man, that sounds like Eric Gale. Sure enough, it's Eric Gale. And that's how I got to know him, you know, just by listening to some of the music that he had played and becoming aware. But he never tried to prove anything. He just played the crap out of every record he was on. And, uh, of course, that Grover Washington record. He sold that record, Mr. Magic. So, yeah. Uh, you never know who you're dealing with until you stop and pay attention, man, to what's yeah. going on around you. I think that's the biggest friend that I have is paying attention to what's going on around me. All right, this is a fun conversation, but I'm going to stop us for a second and give you a little reminder. Check that shop.fender.com. I actually happen to be on the website right now. I'm checking out this new player series. I'm looking at this Duo Sonic because it is a nice shorter scale for anybody who might have smaller hands 
or even for kids if they're trying to find a guitar that's not quite full scale. Check this thing out, all right? Let's get back to it. You brought up Grover Washington Jr. And when I think about him and some of his records in the 70s, and I think about Breezin and some of your records from that era, it seems to me like that sparked a new generation of fusing jazz and R&B and pop together. And as that thing started to develop or had developed into what uh, has now become a bit of a dirty word, which is smooth jazz. And there are varying degrees of people liking smooth jazz or not. And there are certain degrees that I, for myself, am like, oh my gosh, this is so dope. It's just like instrumental R&B music that's really well done. And then there's some of it that you listen to and it just sounds like kind of a flat, boring version of R&B music. Where did things go wrong? And why do some records fall flat for people? And what is it that brings musical depth in others? There's no way I can put a, an exact finger on it. You can overdo anything. It's like a good meal. You eat too much of it, um, and, and uh, it doesn't do you any good. It starts out wonderful. Oh, very tasty. And then all of a sudden, you eat a little bit too much. Then it starts to go the other way, downhill. Hmm. But I think guys who play smooth jazz stop searching. They stop searching the, the theoretical side of, of music. I'm always involved in theory because that's what's going to take us to the next level. Yeah. Have they explored this yet? Man, have you heard what you can do with a dominant seven chord if you add this or you put this major on top of it? Or you do what John Coltrane did called chord stacking where you yeah. stack a batch of chords together and you play them. And it, it's so interesting because people cannot tell where you're going to go next. Yeah, They can't predict where you're going to end up because you don't know where you're going to end up mm. when you start stacking chords on top of each other. Yeah, But they lead you to a place that's very different than, than people might imagine. So therefore, it keeps their interest because they're going to know where is he going with this crazy harmony here. And that's what study of, that's what theory does. It helps you to explore places we've never been before. Or maybe we've been there, but we haven't spent enough time there. Yeah. So, by, you know, by experiencing them and exploring them, we bring something else to the table. Yeah. Well, and I listen to a lot of pop music from today and from past generations, and I think back for me, one of my favorite records of all time, Songs in the Key of Life. You played on songs in the key of life. There's so much awesome, like insane, like if you were to look at it by today's pop music standards, there's insane harmonic exploration on there. If you look at Sir Duke, just the chorus of Sir Duke, if you look, there's so many parts of that record that are hits that explore harmonically in such interesting ways. And clearly it stood the test of time. What was that experience like in that studio? First of all, it was at the beginning of what you might call this or in the middle, the earlier parts of smooth jazz era. But Stevie Wonder has some of the greatest ears in music history. <laughs> he would have made a great classical writer or performer if he wanted to. He wanted to go that way route. He is a, an amazing songwriter because he has such a, a great set of ears. Mm -hmm. uh, he did what I mentioned earlier, stack chords in the place where people don't expect them. Yeah. 
and he explored it, and he, and he resolved them in a way that people could understand why he used those particular, uh, that particular harmony. Yeah. Uh, when he asked me to be on his record, it was a great honor. I didn't know what the heck he was going to do with me or where he was going to put me. But he put me in a, in a, a very um, a prestigious place in the record, and it was a lot of fun. It was musical, and uh, I couldn't have asked for anything better to be on a record with the great Stevie Wonder. And that year, I think I had Reason came out. Yeah. We both had three families that year. My album won five. I think his might have won five, too. <laughs> um, but his record was an innovator, a great innovator for today's music. He showed us some great potential for what was coming next. That's incredible. What an insane year. I mean, you won record of the year for this masquerade. That's right. That's incredible. To me, there, there's so few... I'm trying to think of other people that have been jazz artists that have crossed over and gotten to the height of that. Like, I guess when Herbie did that record, the Joni Mitchell record and won, I think it was album of the year a few years ago, just like thinking about the legendary status of that. And just thinking of certain years where there's so much potent music. That's insane. That's true. Uh, Herbie is the great innovator also tremendous because he came from the jazz world where they allow you to experiment like that. At first, he was not accepted because he had a lot of R&B in his music, a lot of rock and roll, a lot of rock vibes in his music. But later on, his composition proved that he knew what he was doing, and he was taking us to some some great possibilities. And uh, he turned out to be uh, everything and more than people expected from him. And today, he is still at the top of the list of great innovators of our time. Yeah. So yeah, man, and he, he was on a lot of my recordings earlier stuff with CTI. Yeah. And never complained. He never complained that wait a minute, I'm a star too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he never did that. That's not him. Yeah, it's not what kind of him. But when, when it's his turn to speak, he always says something profound. And that yeah. you can bet is automatic with him. So so man, I it was it has been my privilege to be associated with him musically. Yeah, that's incredible. And that theme has been overall through everybody that I've talked to through this podcast and all the masters and the legends is playing what's appropriate, not not letting your ego get in the way of something. Like you're talking about contributing to the Gorillaz tune or Stevie Wonder tune or Herbie contributing to your music. It's not about, look what I can do. It's about serving the purpose of the music. Everybody from the pop guitar players to the jazz guitar players, the rock guitar players, the ones that get it all say... You got to just serve the moment and do the thing. And then once it's your turn, once it's time for you to hit the gas and do your thing, do something compelling in a way that sounds very much you, but also serves the moment. Yeah, I belong here. This is my spot. Move out the way, y'all. Here I come. <laughs> playing this, we're going to play on top of this. <laughs> I play this, this vibe. They will respond with that vibe. And then now I really got something to bounce off of. Okay. Yeah. And I leap to something that I've been working on, maybe something that I've been trying to get across. And if it's working that day, I explore it and let it hang out. So, I mean, I'm not afraid. Music is my friend. Uh, you know, you can always do another take, you know, but uh, many of my best recordings were done on the first take. Yeah. Such as this masquerade is only one take of that. That's one take? 
That's insane. I know what Frank Sinatra said when he heard it. He said, they told me that was done in one take and I didn't believe it. So he sent for the master reel, the 24 track, uh, you know. Are you serious? He did his own research and got the reel? Did. <laughs> Sinatra did. And Warner sent it to him. I was, that's the part that shocked me. What? You sent it to him? <laughs> 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 That's insane. Do you remember the microphone you sang on? Do you remember the, the amp and the mic that was on the amp? Very good. Very well. It was the worst microphone of all time for, for music. It was an Electro Voice 666, which was great for interviews, like on the night show, like maybe the Johnny Carson show. Yeah. I think they had the, they had the, uh, had one of those on that show. And uh, I was using a polytone amplifier for the first time ever because he promised me that when I came to California, he was going to give me one. So when I got to California, I called him and I said, I will be in the studio this afternoon recording a new album. And he rushed one over there. And that's the first time I ever played on it in, in my life. But I had, uh, actually, I, a guy in a music store back east let me hear what it sounded like. I said, oh, this is great. He put the leader of the company on the phone and he, said, he promised to give it to me, and he did. Wow. So when he came to the studio to, to see if his amp was working all right, he heard the playback of one of the songs, and he said, man, he said, is that you playing guitar, Mr. Benson? I said, yeah, because he never paid any attention to my guitar player before. And he said, man, that's phenomenal, you know. And uh, the microphone, I think, that, um, that the, the, the great engineer used was a electro voice, um, an EV, what, 58? It's like a 57, only the professional version of it, you know. Okay. Man, that guitar tone is so sick on that record. I didn't know that was a polytone. Did you then start using a polytone? I used them for years. I used them for years because I had an association with the company after that. Yeah. And this company expanded because of that proportions you would not believe. It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. Wow, that is incredible. It's so fun to hear these stories. It's so fun to hear uh, your experience as a player and just as a musician and, and all that sort of thing. I do know that you have a new record, Weekend in London, which suggests to me a nod at your platinum-selling record, Weekend in LA, which is another live record that's a legendary record to me. So how did you approach Weekend in LA different from Weekend in London? And what can listeners expect from, from this new record? First of all, one of the greatest jazz clubs in history is in London. And that's a Ronnie Scott's club. Oh, it is the God. number one jazz club in all of, they, they say Europe. Yeah. They're including the UK in the Europe uh, genre. And um, it is everything a club should be, a small jazz club should be. Got great seating arrangement, good food. Everybody that comes in there is uh, just dedicated to, to a good time. The atmosphere is perfect. And so it's, it's, the stage is small. But musicians are used to that, especially jazz musicians. Uh -huh. We're always being crowded into some corner <laughs> and expect this to be great. Yeah. So playing at Ronnie Scott's is a great privilege. It was a little bit crowded, but that just made the audience more intimate for us to get to. And we could play subtle things and they got the message. Every note was absorbed by their wonderful ears and their response shows that. 
I love it. I love the record. I had a chance to hear it. The energy is palpable. It's classic Benson, both guitar and singing. It's incredible. So everybody go check it out. George, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you hanging with us today. And uh, one of these days, we got to sit down and play some guitar together. That would be my privilege and my pleasure, my friend. All right, we'll do it. Thanks so much. Have a great day, and we'll talk soon. <laughs> Hold on, let me play that last clip that he said. That would be my privilege and my pleasure, my friend. George Benson just referred to me as his friend. I'm done. I'm good. I can retire. I can retire. Man, what a cat. That Sinatra story was insane. I love that. And also, like, come on, Frank. Give the cat some credit. It's George Benson. Of course he can nail that sucker in one take. I just got to say a huge thank you to George Benson because what a treat. It's not every day that you get to interview one of your absolute heroes. George was the top of my list of interviewees for this season, and I'm so stoked that I got to do it. Thank you to all of you listeners. It's been a real treat to be able to do this podcast. We've got a couple more episodes this season. Next week, James Valentine from Maroon 5. Killer insight into pop music and some nice stories about playing everything from little clubs to playing the Super Bowl halftime show. Come on. Tune in next week. Peace.